Like it's punishment to prayer. Do something like when you're at the dinner table and it's like touch your nose and then it's your punishment that you have to pray because you were the last one to touch your nose. I've never understood I do. That. Yeah. It's, yeah, I don't get that thing. But anyways, tell us a little bit because you really are going and I didn't fill with the kiddos here much on what's going on. Yes, I'm leaving uh, right after church for uh, Nepal, yep. Kathmandu. And uh, I will uh, be teaching a class at the college. I do this every year. And then doing a leaders conference, a pastors conference with about three to 400 pastors and leaders. And um, many of you know the story. I, Nancy and I were missionaries in Germany. And then uh, we came back from Germany. I went to seminary where I did my master's and doctorate. And when I finished seminary, by God's grace, we finished debt-free. All of my education was paid for by very generous donors. Very generous donors. They paid for everything. Books, fees, tuition, the whole works. So we managed to finish all of that. And um, I really love cross-cultural ministry and teaching overseas. So God opened the door for me to do this. Um, I'm with a mission called Eagle Projects, a small mission. And they, uh, the president came to me when I was finishing my doctorate and asked me to help him. He was gifted in sharing evangelism and planning churches and had a lot of pastors that had no training. So I started traveling 18 years ago and uh, preparing and equipping them. And now we have schools and colleges and all of that. So I go every year to uh, Nepal in February or March and then Mozambique in September and preach there. I, often, I get to speak every year in their churches as well. So it's a, real, uh, it's a real joy and a real blessing. So thank you for allowing me the privilege of going, and thanks for praying. It is a long way. It's about 40 hours of flying, so I leave tonight, and I get there sometime on Tuesday. Um, so I get there Tuesday just before lunch, and I start teaching at 1 o'clock. It's just the way they do things, you know? You can beg and plead all you want for at least a couple hours for a nap, and they say, oh, the Holy Spirit will sustain you. <laughs> so uh, thanks for praying for me while I'm gone, and thanks for praying for Nancy. So she pays a price as well. So, because uh, I'll be gone for two weeks. So, thank you. Okay, we are in a series I'm calling The Revolutionary Rescue, and I did that on purpose. Revolutionary, because Christianity, by definition, is revolutionary. It is a revolution to take back what was lost at the fall. On The Christians did not know this, but on Good Friday... When Christ died, all of world history changed. They did not know that at that moment in time. But what they also did not know was that they became countercultural in that one instant. They became revolutionaries. They were terrified because Jesus was accused of sedition, of revolution against the Roman government, and executed for it. And to, uh, to follow after and honor somebody who had been crucified had a very tremendous impact because you're making a statement that the government was wrong. And so they did not realize that they were revolutionaries as well. They just became countercultural in that everything they were doing was now moving in the opposite direction of culture. They didn't realize it until uh, Resurrection Sunday when Jesus appeared in their midst. They didn't understand all that had happened, but they knew that the world was different. Because prior to his appearing in their midst, their whole concept of a Messiah was he's going to come and break the Roman oppression and rule the world and restore dignity to Israel and all of that and honor. And uh, not only did he not do that, he expressed humility, willingness to be shamed, executed, tortured, and all of that, and he's gone. That's not the Messiah they were expecting. So he, he 
what he did was completely out of um, the ordinary and not expected. So when he showed up on Easter Sunday, what they did know for sure was that the whole world had changed. It took him several hundred years to figure out how. So before the church could formulate the statements that we believe today, how do you figure out the Trinity in five minutes? No, it took him quite a long time to make sense of all this these scriptures in here in the life of Christ. And, um, but they began to see right away, immediately, that the world had changed and their big questions were being answered and they had to figure out how. So in the last series, we looked at um, what went wrong and we looked at four or five big questions that the Old Testament finished with a question mark and didn't answer. They're questions that all the Jewish people were wrestling with because we have writings of the period to show us that they were wrestling with it. They just couldn't figure out how to get the answers. And what Jesus did defied all of their expectations. He surprised them all. Uh, He didn't do one thing that they expected. But what they did know on Resurrection Sunday was that the world was a different place. So their message from that time on was actually not very theological when they started sharing Christ. What they said was, you could take our lives. That's okay. But what you can't take is we have seen the risen Lord Jesus. That's what you can't take away from us. So feel free. Punish us, beat us, put us in prison, execute us. It doesn't matter. Because as John said, we've held his hands. We looked in his eyes. We beheld his life. He is risen. And you cannot take that away. And their faith crystallized like that when he appeared in their midst. In fact, remember Thomas said, I'm not going to believe unless I see the nail prints, unless I see the whole spear in the side, the scar. So Jesus walks up to him and says, there you go, Thomas, take a look. Go ahead, stick your finger in here. Take a look. Thomas drops, my Lord and my God. It's real. Everything changed on that day. This is the fourth Sunday of Lent. The purpose of Lent is to prepare you for Easter. And I hope and pray, all the staff and elders hope and pray, that you are taking the time to prepare yourselves. Prayer, self-denial, all the things that we've talked about. To really reflect on the cross. That's what we're doing in here, is to help you reflect on the cross every week, heading up to Resurrection Sunday. All of you are well-versed in the idea that Jesus died for your sins. It's true. I never will deviate from that. I'm so honored that he would do that. But it's far bigger than that. The questions we left in the Old Testament, we left with show that the gospel is very large, what God did. You see, it just wasn't a problem with you. It's a problem with all of creation. All of creation was impacted by the fall. And all of creation needed to experience redemption. And so the cross is about doing all of those. So thus far, we've looked at the restoration in this series of our vocation. Remember, what we lost as our vocation, we lost our true humanity. And so we're in the process of being transformed into the image of Christ. We're becoming true humans again. We're learning how to love, how to be affectionate, how to be generous, gracious, on and on and on. Our vocation as, uh, as priests has been restored. We are priests. We are a royal priesthood, Peter calls us. So not only are we priests, but we reign with Christ. That's what royal means. 
And so we are priests who are shepherding all of creation, including each other. That's the role of a priest. So we take care of God's stuff, if you will, his possessions, his creation, his people. So we talked about the restoration of our uh, about the restoration of worship, where we proclaim the mighty deeds of God. When those on Resurrection Sunday, when they saw the risen Lord Jesus, they could not stop talking about it. Everybody they saw, they told. It didn't matter who it was. It could be a king. It could be a person in poverty. It didn't matter. We have seen the risen Lord Jesus. That's called worship. That's proclaiming the mighty deeds that God has done. We do it through music. We do it when we're in the text. We're looking at the mighty deeds of God. We do it when we take an offering. We're going to come back and talk about this. How is offering an act of worship? We are proclaiming the mighty deeds of God. God, thank you that you have given me resources so that I can share and help those who are needy. To bless those who need blessing. We're proclaiming the mighty deeds of God. We do it when we celebrate communion. We're worshiping. Do this in remembrance of me. We remember the Lord and what he accomplished. So communion is an act of worship. So worship has been restored through the indwelling Holy Spirit. We looked at that. Then we looked at the, uh, the restoration of justice. We are the means of bringing justice out to the world. It's never going to come from the court system. It's not going to happen. It's not going to come from our government. Sorry about that. I don't care which side of the fence you're on, which party you belong to. That's not where it's going to come. Justice, in the way God defines justice, true justice comes because we love our neighbor and we take care of them. We forgive them when they've sinned against us. That's true justice. We step into their world and help them meet their needs when something happens, like they lose their job. That's true justice. We run to their aid when they've been wounded or hurt. That's true justice, when they need help. And so the church worldwide is demonstrating what true justice is, at least we should be, by the way we care for one another. That's true justice. And there are people that are the recipients of your giving through the Benevolence Fund, for example, or through the food bank, who feel the gratitude as justice. It's been restored. So today I want to take a look at the restoration of the kingdom. But we have a little bit of work to do before we can get there. In the last series, I argued that sin was the primary cause of the exile. Remember the story? The northern kingdom, they had gone so far that God destroyed the northern kingdom by the Assyrians, and they never came back together again. Spread them around the world, they never reappeared. That's why you have sayings about the lost ten tribes, and all that. there were ten tribes in the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom, they, uh, they lasted a little bit longer, but they kept sinning as well. So God uh, sent the Babylonians. This is after the Assyrian Empire. Sent the Babylonians, destroyed the southern kingdom, spread them all around the earth. The Babylonians, uh, so they went into exile, the Jewish people did. They knew that the reason was, uh, that the reason they were in exile was because of their sin. Every prophet said that. That was the promise in Deuteronomy. If you disobey my commands, you sin against me, I will dispossess you from the land. And that's what he did. So after a few decades, they regrouped the southern kingdom, rebuilt the temple. In our scholarly literature, we call that the second temple period, because it's the second temple after Solomon's temple. They rebuilt it, but guess what? God didn't reappear. The glory of the Lord never came back. It wasn't a function of confession. 
Ezra and Nehemiah, the last two books written in the Old Testament, are filled with the nation on their knees, those that came back confessing and repenting of their sin with sincerity, and God still didn't come back. And that was the situation when Jesus came. So they're wrestling in the literature of the time when Jesus appears on what's going on. God never came back. His glory's not here. So the problem was the sin of Israel. The temple was destroyed. The one thing that nobody would believe ever happened because that's where God lived. God might, he might allow us all to be taken, but he'd never allow his own house to be destroyed. And he did. We read earlier in the series, Ezekiel's prophecy of watching the glory of the Lord depart. It rises, stops, looks at the temple, I think with sadness, and moves away. God packed up his bags and left. And the temple was destroyed soon after that. That was a surprise in world history. So several questions rise to the surface that they were dealing with that are worth asking. Uh, where did God go? Where did he go? Was God never to have a house again? Was he ever going to have a house? Would he ever come to be with his people again? Would he ever come back? Here's a big one. What would it take for God to return? And it wasn't your confession. It wasn't your humility. Wasn't your read Ezra and Nehemiah, and you'll read some of the most heartfelt prayers of confession. God, we are sorry. And God still didn't come back. What would it take? It would take forgiveness of sins. The exile would not end until sin was forgiven. That happened at the cross. That happened at the cross. Okay, in order to understand how the kingdom is being restored, it's important to understand what the temple is all about. In Exodus, uh, in the book of Exodus, we know Exodus is dealing primarily with the excess, (laughs) right? All the people leaving, all the Israelites leaving slavery in Egypt. But that's actually not the climax of the book. The climax of the book is not the giving of the law. It's not even the Exodus. The climax of the book is the building of the tabernacle. That occupies Exodus 24 through 40. Chapter 24 through 40. That's the climax of the book. Okay? See, what you have to understand about the temple is the temple is the place where heaven and earth come together. That's what the temple was all about or the tabernacle in this case, was all about. The uh, heaven and earth come together. The tabernacle was to be a microcosm, if you will, a little world that symbolized the new creation. It was a place where heaven and earth would come together as God always intended it. It was a place where God would dwell with his people. This was consistent in all religions, by the way. That's how they thought of the temples. The temple is a portal, if you will, between heaven and earth. In fact, if you go to the Hindu temples in India or Nepal today, you'll still see this thinking. Uh, in, in all the temples I've been in, you, you'll have a, a stone cow or a, you know, a concrete cow, or you have a, a concrete uh, elephant or whatever, one of the gods. And the priests will take the food and they'll, and they'll feed it to the, they'll give it to the, the idol, symbolizing taking care of the gods. 
And so the temple is that portal between the domain of the gods and the domain of the humans. So it's very consistent. But look what happens when Moses finished filling the tabernacle, uh, building the tabernacle in Exodus 40. These are the very last verses of Exodus. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not even enter the tent of meeting because a cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, if you've been to any ancient temple, they go through these rituals even today. But nobody shows up. And here's the first story in history of our God showing up in a temple, small temple. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. God was present with them 24 hours a day. And they knew it was time to to pack up the tents and move when the glory of the Lord lifted above the tabernacle. It's time to go. We pack up everything and we take off until the glory of the Lord stops, the cloud or the fire. They'd set up the tabernacle and it would settle again. And they would put their tents there. Sometimes they were in various places for a very short time. Sometimes they were in places for a long time. That's how they knew to move. But what they learned through that was that God dwells with us all the time. He's here constantly. The same thing happened, by the way, when they constructed the temple later on. You can find this in Second Chronicles, chapters uh, 5, 6, and 7, or 1 Kings chapter 7 and 8, where they build the temple. Now, this is kind of an interesting story because David had said, uh, he conquered, he brought peace to all the land, consolidated all the tribes. King David did, brought the glory of the Lord in. With He, uh, he got, grabbed the Ark of the Covenant, brought it in. And he said, now it's time to build the house of the Lord, the temple. And God said, no, you can't build the house. Your son's going to build it. Instead, and this is one of those quirks in prophecy where God smiles. He said, not only are you not going to build the house for me, I'm going to build a house for you. I'm going to build a house for you. We're going to see that a little bit later. I'm going to build the house for you. So his son Solomon builds the temple. Okay? So in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 13, listen to what happens when they're, they just finished constructing the temple. The trumpeters and the musicians joined in unison to give praise and thanks to the Lord. Accompanied by trumpets, cymbals, and other instruments, the singers raised their voices in praise to the Lord, and they sang, He is good, His love endures forever. The thing we do every Sunday together. He is good. His love endures forever. Then the temple of the Lord was filled with the cloud. Just like the tabernacle. Filled with the cloud and the priests could not perform their services because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the temple of God. At this point in chapter 6, Solomon prays a prayer of dedication. It's also recorded in 1 Kings 8. It is a fabulous prayer in front of the nation. Leading them to acknowledge the one true God in faith. But right in the middle of this is a passage which gets to the very heart of what the temple is all about. Verse 32. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. First Kings adds a phrase here, for they will indeed hear of your great name. 
When that foreigner comes, the non-believer who does not know you as God, listen to his prayer. When they come and they pray toward this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place. God lives in heaven and he visits us through the temple. Do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your own people Israel and so that they may know that this house that I have built bears your name. The name of the one true God. Okay, look what happens in chapter 7. When Solomon finished praying, Fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and all the sacrifices. They had like 122,000 sheep they, they sacrificed. I mean, there were animals everywhere, sacrifices everywhere. The fire of God came down and consumed the burnt offering and all the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not even enter the temple of the Lord because of the glory of the Lord filled it. This is what happens when you step into God's presence. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down in the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground, and they the Lord say, His good, His love endures forever. Heaven and earth had come together. God was present. And when they experienced the power and the presence of God, they fell on their knees. How often do you do that? How often do you experience the glory of the Lord in such a way that you fall on your knees? It should happen regularly because God himself dwells inside of you. The problem isn't God not being present anymore. The problem is we are distracted. We have idols. Things that keep us from focusing on the true God. But this is a picture of what happens when you see God for who he really is. They fall on their faces and they worship. They're astounded. Because every temple they've conquered, every temple they've been around, no God ever appeared. But our God did. I suspect it'd be a little terrifying when God showed up. No wonder they fell on their faces. Heaven and earth had come together. God now dwelt with his people and he lived in the temple from then on until the exile. Imagine the sadness when his glory left and never returned. I can't even begin to imagine what Elijah felt when he saw the glory of the Lord lift from the temple. Pause. Look back. And move away. I think there was a moment of sadness for God. He never came back. All right. So what happened at the cross? In John chapter 2, we have the story of Jesus cleansing the temple of the money changers. This is how far away from their roots, they had gotten. The temple was now a marketplace. In fact, the place they filled in the temple was the court of the Gentiles. This is where the Gentiles could come. Remember Solomon's prayer? When the foreigners, when the Gentiles come. So they took up their space to put the money changers in. That's off. No wonder Jesus got so angry. No wonder he got angry. 
But in the middle of this, uh, cleansing the temple, clearing the money changers, he gives us a very puzzling prediction. John chapter 2, verse 16. To those who sold doves, he said, get out of here. Just get out. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. This little phrase, this little clause, his disciples remember, we're going to see it again in just a second, is a wonderful clause because they didn't know what was happening until after the resurrection. Then they began to recall his teaching. So during the event, they're scratching their heads going, what on earth, literally on earth, is happening? This doesn't make sense. The Jews then responded to him. Look what happens. What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. I mean, this temple is a huge construction. Tear it down and I'll rebuild it in three days. We just got a clue. Is it possible to rebuild this temple in three days? No. No. They're being given a clue that world history is about to change. So, of course, uh, being who they were, they said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. Now we have a double metaphor. The temple that he had spoken of was his body, which did rise three days later and created a new body. If you're part of the body of Christ, raise your hand. We have the first clue right here. The temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, there it is. I love it. His disciples remembered what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. It wasn't until after the resurrection. I think we can make a good case that the, the disciples really did not have a solid faith, a live faith, until the resurrection. And it all became real. Every one of you has had a moment, a period of time in your life, if you're a believer in Jesus, where your faith became real. You finally say, yeah, I believe. Yes. I'm a follower of Jesus. I believe. Every one of you has had a moment. So what is this new temple? Paul and Peter both give us some clues. You've read some of these verses. You've heard them read. The first one comes in 1 Corinthians 3.16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? Okay, pause. This is where grammar becomes important. Don't you know that you, plural, become God's temple, singular? One temple comprised of all of us. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? God returned. He came back. But it's in a new temple. If anyone destroys temp the temple, God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. We are the temple of God. The temple has been restored. We are the temple. In Ephesians, he gives us a little bit more insight into it. Ephesians chapter 2, the context of this is that he's just argued that the Jews and Gentiles who had been estranged have been brought together into one new humanity through the cross. 
This is what happened at the cross, is that he reconciled us together. We became one new humanity. So in this context, this is what he says, Ephesians 2, 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, which Christ Jesus himself, as with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, this whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling place, which God lives through his spirit. That's us. That's us. Peter. Peter's got something to add to it. First Peter chapter. As you come to him, as your faith becomes real, he is the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You're being built into a spiritual house. Here's the house that he promised David. That's us. So Kathy, when you turn to the Lord and your faith becomes real, there's a stone put in the wall with your name on it. All right? Nate, when you turn to Christ, there's another stone, says Nate. Rob, you got one. You have two. Yeah, Rob's got two. Heidi's got one. It's amazing, isn't it? Jody, you got one. We're not sure about Mike. It's cracked. It's cracked. I often pick on the elders and one of them asked me one day, how come you keep picking on us? So I decided to start picking on other people. <laughs> No, when you turn to Christ, you get a stone that's added. This temple is growing and being built day by day as people turn to Christ. That's what Peter says. We are a temple in which God dwells. You see, the kingdom has been restored. Think about all that has happened. Our sins have been forgiven. We are priests who reign with him, our true vocation. We proclaim his greatness, true worship. We live out our faith daily in the lives of others and care for them, true justice. The Spirit now indwells us, the true temple. All that's left to understand that the exile has come to an end are two things. The return of His glory and the return of the King. Those are the next two Sundays. Mark's doing next Sunday. Stephen's doing the Sunday after that. And you know what we have? The exile has ended. The kingdom has been restored. This is what the cross accomplished. You see how big it is? It's massive what the cross accomplished. Is it the final installment of the kingdom? Absolutely not. But we have tasted something good, something wonderful. We are part of it. So what does it mean that we're the spiritual temple? Well, here we are in the New Testament. We're the spiritual temple. So how do we define it? Do we look at a Hindu temple or a Buddhist temple? I hope not. No, you see, all the metaphors of the Old Testament are reused in the New Testament to help us understand what true spiritual reality looks like. So we have temple, we have priesthood, we have sacrifice, and many other things. Over here we have 
temple, priesthood, sacrifice, all the same metaphors, but now we can make sense of them. So if we are the spiritual temple together, then let's go back and take a look at the Old Testament temple and say, what happens over here? This is where the God met with his people, the true living God. So when the world comes in contact with us and they step into our space, do they see us meeting with the true living God? This is where the poor could have their needs met. Temple treasury. When the world looks at us, do they see the poor being cared for? Because we're now the temple. This is where all of our conflicts were adjudicated. Didn't need law courts. Didn't need to get uh, sue each other. Because you could trust the priest to help you mediate. When the world looks at us, do they see us solving our conflicts together? Or do they see us going to the courts? This is where all the great festivals occurred. In fact, Deuteronomy 12, they weren't allowed to celebrate the festivals anywhere except in the temple. All the great festivals, they gathered from all around the world, all the Jews, and celebrated. The rabbis tell us that the festival of booths was eight days long. Dancing, parting, 24 hours a day for eight days. When the world looks at us, do they see us suing each other? Do they see us with dour faces? Or do they see us jumping up and down and celebrating? When, we, when the world steps into our space, do they see us laughing? Praising God for how good he is? That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we no longer evaluate each other based on the world's standards. We don't define each other by our sin. We define each other now by the goodness of the Lord. That's what had to change. Sin had to be forgiven so that we could be restored. So we can look at the Jewish temple and we can figure out what we're supposed to be doing when the world comes into our space. Does that make sense? This is what is, should describe us. This is what it means to be the spiritual temple. This is the way we should live our lives together and grow this temple. Let me say a quick word about offering a communion. We're getting ready to do both because they relate very much to this. In 2 Corinthians verse, uh, chapters 8 and 9, uh, this whole section here is Paul's talking about the collection that he takes from one church in one part of the world to another part of the world. We're going to learn something about offering. To help you understand, for many of you, it's a puzzle. How does my offering part of worship? Listen to these words and see if this describes you. 2 Corinthians 8. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty, they're poor beyond your wildest imagination. It welled up in them through the form of rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. When's the last time you pleaded with God for the privilege of giving from your resources? You see, offering is an act of worship. That's why I say don't just put money in. Stop and proclaim the goodness of God. Thank you for blessing me so that I can be a blessing to others. Please give me the chance to bless others. And look at the result of this. This is at the end of the section in Romans 9.12, or 2 Corinthians 9.12. This service that you perform, this giving, is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, there's the practical side, 
But it's also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Gratitude. Ask any of our staff or elders, and they will show, tell you how grateful they are that you keep us in the black. If you happen to come across a person who's been from our benevolence fund or the food bank, ask them how grateful they are that we were there. It results in expression, many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourself, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. Okay, do you see that as part of your confession? When you, when you give, you say, I believe in the risen Lord Jesus. I'm not doing it for tax benefit. I praise God that they give me a tax benefit, but that's not why I do it. I do it because I believe the gospel. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift to you. That's why we give. Can you see how taking the offering is an act of worship? Rejoice in what God has blessed you with and plead with him for the chance to bless others with it. What about, what about communion? I'm going to back up to First Communion, First uh, Corinthians. You all, know, uh, you all know chapter 11 because I quote it every Sunday at communion. But what you probably don't know is that he talks about it in First Corinthians chapter 10. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. There it is. Whatever is keeping you from the Lord, set it aside. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a, par- a participation in the blood of Christ? When you come forward for communion, just a few minutes for communion, you are participating in the blood of Christ. You're experiencing the grace and the joy that comes from it. And many of you suffer, actually suffer as Christians. You are participating in the blood of Christ. And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many, one body. There's that new body, one temple. For we all share the one loaf. Offering in community has always been about the temple. I mean, offering in communion has always been about the temple. It's always been about community. Because you can't talk about the spiritual temple without about community. Imagine a world with me just for a moment where the poor are cared for. Imagine a world where the true priests of God, that's us, minister and steward creation and each other lovingly, willingly, eagerly. Imagine a world where truth is discussed and lived out. It's not fought over, argued over, split over. It's where we enjoy it together. And we enjoy each other's perspectives. We're a community church. We have a lot of theological perspectives. Imagine a world where we talk about it and we laugh. And we don't divide. We appreciate each other's differences. Imagine a world where we dance and celebrate with true joy. Imagine a world, they're dancing in the back. Imagine a world where our conflicts are resolved without the world's systems. Lawsuits are set aside. And we put each other first. Imagine a world where an unbeliever can walk into our space and experience the one true living God. You have found the kingdom. When you can imagine that. God, thank you.
Thank you for your deep, passionate love for us. For surprising us. We're, uh, we're being honest. None of us expected this. But you surprised us and you did it. You made us into your temple. It's us. Your kingdom has come back. Thank you. Help us to live out that kingdom life, Lord, in a way that blesses the world around us. Lord, we plead with you. We beg you. Bring our friends, our neighbors, our relatives. Bring them into our space so they can see what we see and taste regularly. We do plead with you. In your son's name, amen.